Yeah. Really? Yes. Just last week, I, I saw this in my neighborhood. There was this. Cold. Is it going to be cold? Cold. Cool in my. Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's a great story. Okay, what happened was this. I was watching, and there was this car, this strange kind of car, not like a regular car we would see in our neighborhood, you know, that people have and drive and park in their garages and all that stuff. But this is a different looking car. It looked odd, okay? First of all, okay? Odd looking car. File that away. Okay. And he's, this person is, 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 is driving through slowly, and they seem to be pausing in front of houses, kind of like they're checking the place out. And I've seen them do this more than once. Multiple different days, I've seen the same, this same vehicle driving through the streets in our neighborhood and he slowly here in front of this house and in front of that house. Was it our van trying to look through your house? Was it, was it who? Was it our van? No, it was, he asked, was it our van trying to look for your house? No, fortunately not. Do you have a... Do you, does your family have a strange-looking car? Maybe a little. Okay, so we we so it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't the Johnsons. It was stranger than that. Okay, um, so 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 and there was something else I noticed as well that some sometimes this person was was. They were stopping in front of mailboxes and fiddling with people's mail. And, 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 you know, they, they, they even, like, they don't even drive like the rest of us. You know, all the rest of us, we're over here with the steering wheel close to the middle of the road. Well, this car, they had their steering wheel over on that other side. They're driving from the wrong side of their car. I mean, this is just weird. I probably should call the police, don't you think? It's a mail truck. It's a what? It's a mail truck. It's a mail truck? What is that? They deliver mail and messages. Oh, so really it's not somebody casing the neighborhood to, to steal our mail and break into our houses. You don't think so? And it brings packages too. Maybe even bringing packages. He could actually be bringing me a gift, you know? But can you understand how if I didn't know what a mailman was, that would look weird, wouldn't it? I mean, it's a strange-looking little car, isn't it? Nobody else drives cars like that. And he stops in front of everybody's house, sometimes he even goes up to the door, and, he, and he's fiddling with people's mailboxes. I mean, who is this person? And he doesn't even drive the way we do, right? It would be very suspicious if I didn't know about mail people who were delivering messages and even bringing a gift, maybe. You're kind of like that if you're a Christian. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to be different than other people around you. You're going to be doing things that they don't understand that are different from the way other people do things. And yet you do that because like the mailman, you're what? You're a messenger. You're bringing a message to them from God. They may not know that, but you're God's message. You might even be bringing a gift, the gift of knowing Jesus. But if people don't know about mailmen, if people don't know about followers of Jesus who want to share his gift with others, they might think you're strange. They might think you're weird. They might talk about you to other people. Okay? 
So don't be surprised at that. What should the mailman do, even if I think he's weird? He should keep delivering the mail. Even to me. Even if I thought he was weird. Right? Because that's what he's been sent to do. And that's what followers of Jesus have been sent to do. You don't have a mail truck that comes to your house? We got to drive to the mail. Oh, okay. Well, you, while you drive to the mail, drive to other people too and bring God's message to them, even if they think it's weird. Okay, that's, the, that's it. That's Luke 6 in a nutshell. You've got it. Take it back to your folks. Okay. If only this passage was that simple. We've been journeying through the um, Gospel of Luke, knowing Jesus, following Jesus. We, we, in fact, know Jesus as we follow him. I don't think we can know him really without participating in what our Lord is doing, following him in his ways in the midst of this world around him. And we'll have some experiences like Jesus. Now, that might be good news. That might not be good news. That may mean that as, as um, oftentimes life was difficult for the Son of Man who had nowhere to lay his head, so it will be for us. How did we get here this morning? Well, you somehow got to 119th or maybe came up or down 503. No, no, how did we get to Luke chapter 6 this morning? Well, we started after the Advent season and looking further into the Gospel of Luke, first of all, in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, I think it was, we, we, we saw something about Jesus when he, when he was 12 years old. And then from there, Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And there's something about if, if Jesus is growing even in wisdom, if Jesus is growing even in favor, then we should be growing as well. We're not done yet. And, and from there, in chapter 3, you have the genealogy of Jesus, his human background, and his baptism with John. And in that chapter, you see that Jesus has identified himself with humanity. He has identified himself with us even in human sin. He comes to John, and he doesn't need to be baptized. He should baptize John. Jesus doesn't have any sin to come and be cleansed from and confess his need for washing. Jesus is sinless. And in chapter 4, we see that, that Jesus is the one who can resist the enemy's temptations in a way that we nor Adam could. And Jesus is the one who then, sinless himself, comes to those who are unworthy. He comes to his own town where they don't receive him, but he goes to a less worthy place, less likely that they would. And they do believe in him. And from there, as he continues his ministry, he comes down to the shore one day, he intends to engage with Peter. And yes, there's a crowd there that day, but the focus is on Peter, and the lesson that Peter is going to learn and the lesson that we learned from Peter was that we, in knowing and following Jesus, we need to do what Jesus says even when we don't understand. 
That's a pretty straightforward lesson. And yet, it doesn't mean it's an easy one, does it? Because what it was that Jesus told Peter to do, remember that story that they've been fishing all night. And they fish at night so the fish can't see the nets because in the daylight, when the water comes down through the water, the fish can see the nets and they will avoid them. And in fishing all night, driving fish, if there were any, toward the net, they've scared all the fish away, but it turned out there weren't any. They caught nothing all night long, attempt after attempt after attempt. There are no fish, and you can't catch them in the day anyway. Everything that Jesus is telling Peter is completely counterintuitive to his own experience, and yet Peter's response is, well, it's wonderful. And you got to love Peter. Sometimes he nails it. Sometimes he misses it. This time he nailed it. He said, Master, we've been toiling all night. We've got nothing. Yet, at your word, because you say so, I will. He'll do what doesn't make any sense to him. Because that's what Jesus said. Now, we're not fishermen, so what does that mean for us? I'm glad you asked. Because in Luke chapter 6, we are called, it's described for us to be radically different. We're to be different in particularly, particular ways for a particular purpose. And we don't have to worry about putting down the nets. We're not fishermen. Actually, we're engaged in the work that Jesus has given us of fishing for men. Even as he told Peter, right? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, fortunately for you and I, Jesus has gotten very specific in uncomfortable ways, but in ways that don't make sense to us. The things that he's going to tell us to do in this chapter are things that you can rally good arguments against. They're things that, like Peter could, you can come up with all the reasons why that won't work and why we shouldn't do that. But let's hear from God's Word. Hearing from God's Word, we're looking for what is it we need to know? What, what, what enables us? What frees us to do this? What, what does it look like? And really, what's the big reason why? Let me frame it that way. Let's read from Luke chapter 6 from verse 20. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be, you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you, mistreat you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, who asks of you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, this, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners who who despise the ways of God, even they do that, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to also receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive back the same. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful then, even as your Father is merciful. Now this could seem to be, and sometimes a nutshell version of it, we call the golden rule, do to others as you would have them to do to you. We, we, we consider that, that's just good interpersonal skills. Wouldn't it be great if we all functioned this way? Wouldn't it be great if society, if we can model this in society, maybe, maybe throughout society people would live more like this? I don't think so. I don't think that's the norm. I don't think Jesus' purpose here at all is to describe a norm for human society. He in, he in fact, he's instructing us on how to live as abnormal within human society. Or to live right in a wrong majority. He tells us to, if, if, if this was just a, a model of a good way to live, it would end up in sorting society into givers and takers. Into sheep and wolves, and then God must, of necessity, judge the wolves. He's telling us in these passages, the first six, six or seven verses, 20 to 26, to sacrifice today, to yield today in view of God's future. That we can humble our, ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, for he will lift us, he will exalt us in due time. Blessed are you who hunger now. You will be satisfied in his abundance and joy. That we are to yield our pride. We're to yield our rights for the sake of others' possible salvation. We are to yield what we would desire for ourselves simply for the sake of showing God well to the world. And it's not even based upon response. If you do this, they will then. No, we don't even know what they will. They may do more of the same. That's not the point. The point is that we show well our Father. To to love and, and share in radical ways that show the exceeding greatness, the incomprehensibleness Beyond our understanding how it is that God can give the way God gives. And he intends to do that toward others 
through us that he might be known as we do. Well, who is this for, first of all? And if it's, not for, it's not a society rule in general, but this is for, this is for those who, who follow Jesus. These, this, this is for his own. In fact, he alludes to that several times. In verse 20, he's, ex, he's, he's looking at his disciples. This is for those who would follow him and learn from him. They are treated unjustly for a particular reason in verse 22, on account of the Son of Man. This is trouble and persecution and mistreatment that comes upon you, not just because people are mean to people generally, but because of your testimony of the Son of Man. Because you believe in Jesus and you're not ashamed for others to know it. As you make decisions, as you declare something to be true or not, based on your faith in what God has said, you can expect to find that rejected. That's not new in our culture. This has been the way of the world since the fall in the garden and certainly was Jesus' own experience. So he says that, that, that we can expect that. When you name the name of the Son of Man, you expect to be treated unjustly because of it. It is for, these instructions are for those who hear him. Not everybody does. These are ways that we would show the mercy, he says in verse 35, of our Most High Father. So those who know the Most High and trust in Him, those whose Father is in heaven, that's who this instruction is for. This instruction is not for most people in the world. It's for you if you believe in Jesus, if you know Him by faith as the one who loved you and died for you and you want to follow Him, this is what it looks like. This passage is also one of those just to prove that as we're hopping and skipping through the book of Luke, we're not going to every passage, but it's not because Bob's ducking the hard ones. This is probably one of the hardest passages in the book of Luke, certainly the hardest we've come to so far because of what it asks of us, that we are all so tempted to come up with all kinds of qualifications. The one qualification we see so far is this is for believers only. Don't expect your neighbors at large to live this way. Why would they? We live this way only because we follow the one who lived and died this way. This is a very condensed Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount is like three chapters. Here, it's, it's a handful of verses, and then it's applied in, this, in these particular ways, but much shorter, and it's, it's aimed at those who are following Jesus. And remember, Luke's gospel, I described once before, Luke is writing to Paul's audience. Think of those churches that have been planted around the Mediterranean, a circuit from Cyprus to what's, what's modern Turkey, and up to Philippi, and down to Thessalonica, and Athens, and Corinth. In all of these places, people have believed in Jesus and they have been expelled from their synagogues, whether they were Jewish or whether they were non-Jewish people who came there because that's where the scriptures were read and taught and they believed in the God of Israel as Israel's presence among the world was supposed to cause. And yet, in believing in his son Jesus, they have been expelled from the synagogue and they are also ridiculed and outcasts among Roman society of the day. They don't fit. They are called cannibals because of something about the, the partaking of the body and blood of Jesus. 
They are referred to as atheists because they only believe in the one true God rather than all the gods and even worshiping the, the emperor as every good Roman patriot would. And so they are, they are marginalized at best. They know what it's like to to be poor because they've lost their livelihood because of their faith in Jesus. They know what it is to be mocked and mistreated even before the courts. That's who Jesus is speaking to. And these are ones whose confidence is in their Lord. They look to his future rather than to preserve their comfort and their rights, their entitlements in the present. That's their perspective. That's what he tells them. Blessed are you, you will be. You will be. God's promise to you is sure. Wait for it. Live in light of it. Lean into it, even in the presence. Because as as Christ's messengers, expect to be wronged. It's right to be wronged. That's where we follow him, and in fact, that's also where we will know him. As we enter into the kind of sufferings as Jesus did, rejected because of God's truth, we'll appreciate all the more what it was. We'll we'll experience, we'll taste something of what it was that Jesus did for us. We will know him in following him. From verse 27, in loving our enemies. In doing good to those who hate you or those who despise, who look down on you, who detest you, who devalue you. And this is not doing good in the sense of southern nice. You know, bless your heart. A kind of a condescending compliment. You've heard those before. Like, oh, you look so nice today. You must have spent hours doing your makeup and hair. That's kind of a compliment. Is it? You wouldn't look nice if you hadn't spent hours doing your hair. You look nice today because you normally don't. There's a, there's a lovely way that, that uh, particularly I used to hear in the South, that uh, they are, we, have, we, we have lovely ways of condescendingly complimenting people. That's not what's being described here. We're not preserving. It, it's, it's not an inside joke that we can smile at together. Do good to those who despise you. Bless those who curse you. Now the word bless here is to say God bless you. You know, you, you, you've been rejected, you've been hurt, you've been insulted. Well, God bless you and you're on your way. And you don't even really mean it. That, the word bless is, is, is where we get our word eulogize. It means to speak well of. We have a eulogy in a, in a funeral or memorial service to speak well of somebody after they're gone. Probably far better to speak well of them while they're here. But can we speak well of the one who speaks harshly and judgmentally of us? To the one who has said that we are, 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 are cursed in the religious circles of the day, cursed by God, cast out of the synagogue. You don't belong with the rest of the people. To pray for those who mistreat you. You know, uh, a great... Um, Um, expansion of that verse, to pray for those who mistreat you. Write down, if you're a note taker, write down Romans 12, 14 to 21. There's a place where you can do some journaling. Again, another passage, actually, 
You could say that Luke here is commenting on what Paul already wrote to the Roman church in Romans, Romans 12, 14 to 21. Because Romans was actually probably written before Luke was. Although Luke is recording the words Jesus said prior, but at the end of Paul's ministry, Luke in, 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 in his gospel and in Acts is setting the stage for the churches to understand how they fit and how they should view their Roman antagonists. How they should relate to the Roman culture around them that is antagonistic toward their gospel. But in Luke, you see that Roman culture and Roman officials portrayed accurately and sometimes unjustly and yet often, surprisingly often compared to first century literature and how they normally viewed Roman officials and particularly soldiers. Luke seems to be going out of his way to record so that the church will remember a surprisingly receptive Roman audience. Luke sees the Roman world around them. Luke would see the world around us today that seems antagonistic to the message of Jesus as a potentially receptive mission field that we dare not give up on, but we must engage. And how? How do we engage? Loving your enemies, doing good to those who despise you, blessing those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Well, why would you expect them to do so differently? I mean, it's kind of like Bob's example of what I saw in the mailman. If I didn't know anything about mailmen, then you say, how could you grow up around here and not know anything about mailmen? Okay, that's a, that's a fair point. But what if there's a particular aspect about the goodness of God and the gospel of Jesus that the people around us are simply completely ignorant of? They are completely blinded to because... 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus. For God has said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. God, by his Spirit, shines in us, through us, to the people around us. We who are made in the image of God to show the image of his likeness to people around us because they've been blinded to God's love and his mercy and his kindness toward them in Jesus. And so God says, I'm still showing it to them anyway. Whether they like it or not, I still intend to show it to them anyway, not for the end game or the result of all the people who are going to be saved, because you do. That actually is not the point. The point is that you are a faithful image bearer of your Savior, of your loving and merciful God to the world, whether they believe or they don't. Our goal is the same, to show them something of our Savior. That's what he's describing for us here. So then, he unpacks that. The, 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 this idea of blindness, Alistair Begg unpacks it this way. He describes, what if your spouse had eye surgery? And out of this kind of eye surgery, that they're, they're, they're going to have patches over their eyes, they're going to be blind for the next couple of weeks. And they come home, and in the midst of being home, you're so glad they're home, but they keep stumbling into stuff. They keep bumping into you, and then they, they, they accidentally get too close as they're walking by, finding their way, feeling their way, and as they're feeling their way, they actually knock 
this particular ornament that you had purchased together on your honeymoon. And it can't be replaced. You can't get another one. It's shattered into a hundred pieces. There's no way to restore it. And, and how could you be so careless? How could you knock that down? How could you break that? It's because I'm blind. I couldn't see it. And that's actually, though they don't know it, that's where the people around us are spiritually. Those who trouble you can't see it in the same way. To put it in the, in the kids' talk, they don't know anything about mailmen. So the whole operation looks very suspicious to them. Okay? And so it would. We shouldn't be surprised at that. So we will pray for those who mistreat us. We will remain vulnerable to those who would harshly reject us or even take advantage of us. There's the turning the other cheek. There's the cloak and the tunic also. Those who harshly reject or take advantage of. Now, now this, this um, particular passage has been terribly, terribly misunderstood and also misused. This passage about abuse has actually been abused. It's been taken sometimes to suggest that, well, go ahead and just go with the bullying. Make your, allow yourself to be a target for bullies. That's not what it's saying. To, to go ahead, if, even in a, a spousal abuse situation, if you're struck, well, just allow yourself to be struck again. That maybe the guilt out of doing such a terrible thing will someday soften the person's heart if they don't kill their spouse first. It's a stupid approach. That's not what the passage is saying. Turning the other cheek is a particular expression. Think of, a, it's a, we have a saying, that was a slap in the face. When nobody touched you, but they treated you in a shamefully rejecting way. The turning the other cheek, the slap on the face in the first century was how somebody was expelled from the synagogue. We get a couple of looks at it. It was official rejection. A slap on the mouth was the words you are saying are heresy and not fit to be spoken. Jesus endures that in John chapter 18 when he's in the, in the house of the former high priest who's still controlling the whole operation from the background, even though his son-in-law is now high priest, Caiaphas. But Annas is still, he's still controlling and calling the shots. And Jesus first seems to go to his house for, for an examination. And yet it's a, it's, a, it's a kangaroo court from the very beginning. And they, they ask him to explain these things that he has said. And he said, why don't you, I, everything I've said, I've said publicly, why don't you go and ask all the people who heard me? Which is exactly what they should do, is they should ask witnesses, according to the law of Moses. And in response to his challenge to them that why don't they, if they really want to know the truth, why don't they go about it the right way, the, the, he's ordered to be slapped in the mouth. Is that the way you speak to the high priest? And Jesus doesn't just, oh, well, here, hit me again. He says, well, if what I've spoken to you is wrong, explain how it's wrong. And if not, then why have you struck me? And what he's done in that statement, he has actually demonstrated to the broader jury of the Sanhedrin that would be others in the room that are hearing this, he's demonstrated to them that this is not a lawful proceeding at all. And he's undercut their ability to participate in it any further. 
And so that wraps up the trial. So Jesus doesn't merely become milquetoast Messiah before them. He actually challenged, why have you mistreated me? And yet he stays in the, he could have struck them down. You strike the son of God and wham, he doesn't do that. It could have been very subtle. Their hearts could have just stopped. Or it could have been a Darth Vader moment. He doesn't do any of that. He remains vulnerable to their abuse even as he points out the injustice of it. Same thing happens with Paul. And it would have happened with Paul before Luke is writing and assembling all this together while, while Paul is cooling his, his heels there in Caesarea or, and later in Rome. And uh, with, with Paul, again, he's he, in the midst of a trial that being conducted by the high priest, he's slapped in the face because they reject his response. And he doesn't just melt in front of it. He actually stands up to it and he challenges the injustice of it. But he remains. He doesn't at that time end the proceedings appeal to Caesar. Only later at the leading of God does he do that. He remains engaged and yet vulnerable. That's the point. That we are, for the, for, even when, we, when the truth of God is rejected from you, it does, we, we are tempted to just withdraw. We are tempted to wash our hands, kick the dust off our feet, be on our way, retreat to our safe place, close the doors, pull up the drawbridge, and we will simply worship the Lord together till he comes. And that is not what he's telling us to do here. He's telling us to continue to remain out there and vulnerable in the midst of mistreatment and abuse. They would take Jesus' cloak, wouldn't they? And his tunic as well. And draw lots for it. So the one, one of the execution squad could get the whole thing. And what does Jesus do? He prays for those who persecute him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. They don't know what a mail truck is. How would we expect them to understand any differently? You will experience uh, people canceling you because of your faith. You will experience somebody unfriending you on social media because of something that you shared or posted that they don't agree with. They will talk about you. They will mock your faith before others. They will publicly reject and shame you. They might blacklist you. They might sue you, seek to destroy your livelihood. They will insist that you compromise your faith or you will lose your job. All of that was happening to first century Christians. And before the Lord comes, we will experience some of the same. This is not uncommon in the world, and it will happen in the midst of our lives too. And some of you have experienced that already at one level or another. Nothing that I describe there are things that aren't happening to Christians around us today. What do we do in the midst of that? I will, I will 
I, I won't seek to be abused. I'm not asking to be struck again if you took one good shot at me, but I'm not going to withdraw. I'm not going to run and hide. I'm going to still rather be generous with those in need, even those who would take advantage of me. And this is not new. This has been the way of God's people. I want to put Psalm 37 up on the screen. A couple of verses from Psalm 37 that bear this out. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous... Those who trust the Lord, they are generous and give. Why? Why can we give? Why do we not need to guard our own security? Because our Lord has got this. We can trust our way to Him. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of God. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord who, when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. For the Lord upholds his hand. God has us. And it's in that confidence of blessed are you anyway that we can give ourselves away in ways like Jesus did knowing we're going to be mistreated, knowing we're going to be understood, knowing others will take advantage. We're to do to others as we would have them to do to us, not as they do to us, not reciprocating in kind, but rather returning love for hate, mercy for evil. That. That's an idealistic and unconditional. It doesn't have, a, have an agenda. There were moralist teachers of the first century that said the same kind of thing. They, they showed hum, humanity's awareness of God's ideal, but they, they also pointed out people's inability to do that. The ancient world rather lived practically by the premise, do good to others so they will do good to you. That's what you heard described there. You, you do good to people so that for the benefit you'll get out of it. That's how the first century lived. But Jesus called it to something different. And there's a, there's a second century commentary um, by a man named Clement. Second Clement. And he comments on this very verse. So let's, let's, let's just listen in on how the second or third generations of the church understood this. When they hear from us what God says... It is no credit to you if you love them to love you, but it is a credit to you if you love your enemies. Now, did you catch that he said what God says? Jesus is God incarnate. It is a credit to you if you love your enemies and those who hate you. When they hear this, they wonder at this extraordinary goodness. This is unusual. This is weird. It's Gooder than anything we see in the world around us. But when they see that we not only do not love those who hate us, but we do not even love those who love us, they laugh us to scorn and the name is blasphemed. If we do this, we will show them the love of God in Jesus. If we don't, we make a mockery of it. That's what Clement was warning Ignatius wrote to Polycarp, and I like this quote, so I included it on your notes. We indeed love not only good disciples, but troublesome ones. Do you know any troublesome disciples? Love them too. You know, people like me. All of us can be a little troublesome at times, can't we? Love those ones too. 
not only the good but the troublesome ones, to be wise as serpents while also being gentle as doves, deal tenderly with what is visible, but pray for invisible needs or motives to be revealed. We need to, be care- we need to seek prayer for what is the right response in this situation. I might give to somebody who asks, and yet in so doing, I might be enabling their meth habit. I want to give them money for food, but it's really going somewhere else. That isn't going to be a help to them. It's only going to further enable their fall. So we want to have some understanding of what is the right thing to do here. A a writing instruction to the first, second century church called the teaching expressed it this way. But concerning this, it was also said, Let thine alms, your giving, sweat into thine hands until thou knowest to whom thou art giving. Don't give carelessly and yet give generously. Seek God's wisdom in the right ways and the helpful ways to give. But I'm not cheap. I'm just careful. I, I am not by nature generous. I grew up without. I grew up having to be very careful. I grew up in my formative years forming patterns of I had to watch out for myself and keep for myself what I had. I had very little. That pattern that I learned as survival when I was young still echoes around in my head and my heart. I have to poke myself to be generous. I don't know where in this list your hang-ups are, but I can guarantee you they're there. For all of us, they are. And that's what our Lord is, is, is pushing us at. Let that gift Sweat in your hands, wanting to be given. Don't give it carelessly, but don't put it back in your pocket. How will I give well, knowing to whom and to what I am giving? We love others, even at our own loss, because that's what God's love looks like. We typically do things that are going to benefit ourselves, some reciprocal way. This is going to repay me, but the benefit comes in in trusting myself to God, my circumstances to Him, yielding then and giving to others. Even sinners loan to those who can repay, loan to those who can also give a loan back to them when they're going to need it. The world works that way. You, you, um, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And Jesus is telling us to scratch the back of the person that will not help you back. Help them anyway. Speak well of them anyway. The credits as sons of the Most High God, the way the passage ends, comes in demonstrating God's kindness to those who are ungrateful and God's mercy to those who are evil. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we look back on our salvation, I was evil. I was ungrateful. I cared not that the Son of God died for me until he showed himself to me. And you know what? He showed himself to me in a little church full of genuine believers who loved the Lord more than themselves. That's where I got my first glimpse of Jesus. Who hates you, despises you, looks down on you, disrespects you because of your faith. What good 
could you do for them? How could you help them? Who curses you or slanders you, speaks poorly of you to others? Maybe it's publicly on on social media. Maybe it's at work trying to advance themselves. They criticize you. Will you bless them, honor them, speak well of them? How could you do that? What would that look like? Where could you speak well of somebody who speaks harshly of you? Who treats you unjustly? It's not fair. They claim from you that which they have no right to. Will you pray for them and their hurt, their emptiness? Who has canceled you, publicly shamed you, took advantage, tried to ruin you? Will you withdraw from them to protect yourself? Or be vulnerable to further attack by continuing to draw near in humility and grace? Give them another word spoken of Jesus' love that gives them another reason to strike back at you again. But you'll do it anyway. It's not safe, but it's merciful. Let's pray. Father, we need to not only know this passage and this truth, but Lord, we need to take a step into it. We want to know more of your mercy, but Father, we need to then live more in your mercy toward people around us, people who are harsh to us, people who are against us, People who maybe don't even care enough to be against us. And we're tired of just being dismissed. But Lord, in whatever one of these circumstances, would you give each of us the person that today or this week we would love, help, speak well of, pray for, even extend ourselves to in a way that sets us up maybe to be hurt again. But we would do that to show them something of the forgiving kindness and mercy of our God and Savior. Help us to do that, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.